your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Premier gets the snap. Up yes. bucket. It's loose. The football's rolling toward the goal line. It's at the five. It's going to be landed on at the one-yard line by the Huskers. Simon Odie lands on the football. Nebraska's going to have first and goal to one after blocking a punt. Sports Nightly is presented by the NDOT Highway Safety Office, who reminds you to buckle up and put the phone down. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Yep, here we are. Tuesday Night Sports Highly here on the Husker Sports Network. Thank you so much for spending some of your night with us here tonight. We are honored. And we're going to put on a show for you. We're going to have we're going to do our best to put on a show for you here tonight. Coming up here in a few minutes, we will have Dirk Chapman of the Omaha World Herald join us. He wrote an interesting column today about why do all the big college football games in the postseason, bowl games, why do they all take place in the South? I get the weather, but maybe it's time to spread the love around a little bit because you watch these NFL playoff games, and so many of them are in northern climates like Green Bay, Kansas City, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Seattle. But college football, no, they always play them down south. Big advantage for those teams down there, isn't it? And has been for decades. We're going to get Dirk's take on that. He wrote an interesting piece that's up at Omaha.com right now. That's coming up later on in this hour. We're going to have tonight our first Husker volleyball show of the year. It's been, what, 13 months since we've had a volleyball show? It's going to be, It's about time to get Coach Cook on with John Baylor. That will be our two of our programs to get your calls, comments, questions ready for the head coach. As Tim told you in the ticker, they now know they will play at 5 o'clock Central Friday and Saturday. We'll have both games here on the Huskers, both matches here on the Husker Sports Network. Pre-game coverage begins at 4.30 with John Baylor and Lauren Cook-West. Looking forward to that Friday at 5 for sir for the 2021 Husker volleyball season. So our first show coming up in hour number two. It is Tuesday, so Top 10 Tuesday will be headed your way. In the top of hour number three, we're going to have some some fun with older athletes, older athletes above the age of 40, because this past weekend in the NFL, you had that matchup between Brady and Breeze, two 40-plus-year-old quarterbacks in the New Orleans-Tampa Bay game. So we'll see what's happening. Uh, we'll, We'll put together our list, see what Ben and Tim have for that. That's going to be fun to jump into that coming up in the third hour. We're also going to hear about men's gymnastics for the Corn Oscars. That season begins this weekend at the Devaney Center. Chuck Schmelka will join us to talk about this year's Husker team. Uh, The women's got their season underway last week against Illinois. Did not have a very good performance. See what the men have in store for their seasons. We're looking forward to hearing from Coach Schmelka coming up in hour number three. And as always, phone lines are open and available for you at 531 54686. That also doubles up as our U.S. Cellular text line. U.S. Cellular, proud to be the official wireless sponsor of the Huskers. U.S. Cellular connecting Husker Nation. Let's start first with the Husker women's game this afternoon. Huskers come up short 76 71 to Minnesota. The Gophers were absolutely on fire from three point range as they made 15 threes. They were 15 of 32 from three point range. Were the were the Gopher women today? Nebraska just went ice cold. Missed their first fourteen shots of the fourth quarter after Nebraska led pretty much the entire game, uh, but went ice cold to start the fourth quarter. Ended up going two of eighteen in the fourth quarter, and they dropped one seventy six seventy one. 
So as the wacky world of college basketball, you can be going in a good direction and then you drop a game to a team that, you know, on paper, your favorite of me. They're two and seven was Minnesota coming into that game. But when you go ice cold and somebody lights it up from outside like Minnesota did, you're going to drop a game. So the momentum uh, halted for Amy Williams' squad with the loss today to the Gophers. Uh, they're now seven and five on the year, and they have now six days off. They don't play again until next Monday night. But uh, tough one for them to drop in uh, at the at the PBA earlier today. Ben McLaughlin, the uh, it's it's so tough. You you win some games over ranked teams, and it's human nature, right, to relax a little bit. You don't play a team with a number by the side of their name, so they're not ranked. You see their record. Coaches can pound into your head during the scouting report. Don't hey, this team can beat you. And Minnesota played Maryland a pretty competitive game over the weekend, so they're not a bad basketball team. But man, somebody makes fifteen threes on you, you're gonna be tough to beat anybody. Yeah, I mean, you, you run into these nights sometimes, and you know it's frustrating as a coach, as you said, because the message, right? Cliche, nameless, faceless opponent. Um. But, you know, sometimes you just can't throw it in the ocean. That's definitely what it sounded like happened there in the fourth quarter. And, you know, again, a competitive conference like the Big Ten is, you're going to have some of these games that, that just don't go your way. And, you know, a, a learning lesson for sure for the, for them. Uh, they had been riding high, even even going back to that, that trip, you know, to Michigan, uh, playing really well against both Michigan schools, losing a tough one against the Wolverines. A lot of talk if – the women should be in, in ranked consideration. Uh, they were receiving votes in the polls this week. Kate Kane, Big Ten Player of the Week. There was a lot going right for the team, and that's typically when a letdown happens. And unfortunately for the team, um, you know, they, they tripped up today against Minnesota, and, you know, you hope that they can just get right back on the horse and pick up where they left off before today's game. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just, it's tough to keep momentum going. That's when you can string together wins in league play. You really jump up. And I know that this team, and, and it was mentioned yesterday on the program, that they were hitting a stretch of teams that were not ranked, were not even a, above 500 record-wise, starting with the Gophers today. But you can't relax. It's just there's not that much of a difference when you get in a league play with teams, so you better bring it every day. And, and hey, you, you wonder a little bit about whether the legs went out for Nebraska a little bit. When you go 2 of 18 and a quarter, and they've been playing a seven-person rotation. You played on Saturday against Ohio State. You come back three days later. Maybe your legs just kind of gave out. And I know that team's going to start getting some people back from injuries as they move forward. And actually, one of their incoming freshmen, Ben, this is a really interesting story. One of their incoming freshmen is a young lady from Minnesota. It is Kendall Colley, who is – the state of Minnesota is not playing high school basketball right now because of COVID. So she just said, I'm going to come to semester. I'm going to come early. Like a lot of the football players do. I'm going to come early. She's going to start dressing for this team. This is a free year for the basketball teams. Doesn't matter. She's still going to be a freshman next year. She's obviously hadn't been in a practice yet. It's going to take her some time, but they don't they, they're going to have some practices now between now and Monday. But she was a really highly thought of player, a top 50 player by ESPN coming out of her junior year. Uh, she's six foot two and she's going to start playing for this team. So Nebraska and a couple other people in the Big Ten have started to do that as well. Take advantage of that. Get him here and let's go. Imagine that, right? I mean, imagine imagine what that must feel like getting ready to play your last season, have that be canceled. And and there's not the bridge program. There's not the weight training. There's not that, uh, you know, this is what school's going to be like. This is your orientation. 
you're showing up and you're putting on a jersey and you're sitting on the bench. I mean, I'm imagining just the circus of emotions that that must feel like for any sport going from the high school to the college level. I mean, there is literally no acclimation period at all uh, to, to what this thing's about. You know, I, as you know, and as our listeners know, I, I always love asking the seniors, you know, was there a moment in your career early on where you thought, I'm not cut out for this. This is just something I can't do. And everyone says yes, and every story is just gold about how I was going up against this all-conference nose tackle or I went up against this this four-year starter at O-line or this guy, this safety clocked me running an in route on a practice, and I thought, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. Every single one has that story, but every single one is against their own team. I mean, obviously in this situation, she's going to practice before she gets on the floor. It's not like she's going to go start a bunch of games, but – that grooming period, that 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 um, dip your toe in the water, so to speak, of, of what the next level is going to be like, is so important. And, and 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 most of those stories are just such absolute gold. I can't ever recall a situation like this happening. I mean, it's almost like, you know, like I'm remember, and I don't know why this just popped in my head, but remember Brandon Finnegan pitched in the College World Series for TCU. And like a yes. month later, he's pitching for the Royals in the World Series. I mean, that's that's yeah. almost what it's like. I mean, you're going to face high school talent, and now you're going to face you know some of the toughest teams in America in college. You know, for him, he was going up against pitching against college kids to go pitching in the World Series. I mean, it's just it's just crazy sometimes how how this works out. You know, showing up. I'm, I'm imagine I'm imagining her just showing up and putting on that uniform for the first time. What that must feel like. Um, I mean, it's just, I mean, that's, that's just a crazy scenario. Kendall was the number nine wing in the nation, according to ESPN. This is a really talented player being added to the Husker roster. And incidentally, Nebraska played Minnesota today. The Gophers have a player doing the same thing. They had a young lady who was playing prep ball in Minnesota or hoping to her senior year. Again, they're not playing high school basketball in Minnesota because of the pandemic. And so she joined the Gophers two weeks ago. She's already played a game. She played again today against Nebraska. So now Kendall Colley expected to uh, start working out with the Huskers in their next practice and try to get herself ready. She is a childhood friend of Kennedy Orr. Who's Kennedy Orr, you say? Kennedy Orr is an early enrollee to John Cook's volleyball program. So she's here. She's not going to compete with the Huskers this spring, but she's here. Uh, she was the Gatorade Volleyball Player of the Year in the state of Minnesota. So Kennedy and Kendall know each other, uh, and they're, now they're both in Nebraska. But Ken- Kendall is going to start playing right away. Kennedy's going to wait and make her debut with Husker Volleyball next fall. Uh, so this is crazy times, but I can't blame these these high school athletes. If you're in a state – and I saw a notification today. Remember the state of California did not play high school football in the fall. They pushed it off to the spring. Now one of their associations, and they have several associations out of the state of California because it's so big, that came out today and says, no, nah, we're, we're not playing football in the spring. We're not going to do it. So those kids missed an entire year of football. That's why I'm so grateful that the, the high school association here in Nebraska held in there and uh, they got their – they got their games in, and, and all the fall sports were completed. It wasn't easy. There were some cancellations along the line. Currently, we're still getting basketball and wrestling, and I know swimming's underway in the state of Nebraska, so I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But this is so bizarre, so bizarre. But uh, I know there are several players. Matt Cotney kind of alerted me to this a couple of days ago, that there are going to be several players in, in Big Ten women's play that are 
that are playing, starting to play right now with their teams. It's just a really bizarre thing that's happening. We are um, we are expected to talk tomorrow night, Ben. I'm excited about this. To the head football coach, um, slated to be with us tomorrow is Scott Frost. We've not talked to the coach since after that uh, the, the post game interview that we had after the Rutgers game. So that's a month ago, and there's a lot, right? There's a lot that has changed. You've got a lot of guys who have announced that they're coming back. You've had some departures for the program, unfortunately. Uh, but you picked up a couple of transfers. So I, I'm, I'm excited to hear from him tomorrow night. I saw, I don't know if you caught today, Ben, on social media, more and more of those incoming players are, are landing in, in Omaha and coming to Lincoln and starting to, to get ready and get ready for the semester, which begins at UNL on Monday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'll. Uh, it's great that they're here. It's great that they can finally get going and, you know, a, a little boost – a little boost to the program is never a bad thing. You know, positive mojo, welcome in some new players and hopefully get them on board to, you know, what this season's going to be like and what it's like being a Husker and, you know, taking the uh, the the role in which that, you know, freshmen typically have of learning and being a sponge and, you know, hopefully being patient with the process and becoming valuable members to this team. Because this is this is a really important class. This is a really really crucial class for this staff, and they they need some of these players to pan out and and develop rather quickly <clears throat> to get in and help this team. Now, this is masked a little bit because of how many guys came back, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. I think the sense of urgency is probably ratcheted a few notches if you know three or four of those guys decide to move on. Um, but you know, getting the safeties, get Cam, getting Cam back, getting JoJo back, Stilly, Honus, um, you know, getting all those guys back really kind of ease the role of some of those guys, specifically on the defensive side of the ball, to where it's not sink or swim necessarily. You've got some time to groom and um, you know get to know you know your teammates and and what it's going to take at this level to be successful. A little more urgency probably on the offensive side of the ball, specifically at that receiver position. Those guys need to come in here and be ready to compete and get after it right away. So a little bit different, I, I would say, based on, on what position you're playing. But it, it's always great to have these kids finally here and enrolled in class, wearing Husker gear, getting used to you know what it's like to be here in Nebraska. Yeah. All right, so that's what we have on the program tonight. Again, highlighted by our first volleyball show coming up in hour number two. We did last night play you a snippet of the recent – edition of the podcast conversation with the cooks it dropped today conversation with the cooks is now presented by u.s cellular make sure to catch new episodes each month by following husker sports on our social media accounts or check out youtube our youtube channel all right uh when we come back to our chat with the omaha world herald he'll join us next We're back on a Tuesday night edition of Sports Island here on the Huskers Sports Network. Again, John Cook coming up at the top of the hour, our first volleyball show of the year. John Bader, John Cook, the dynamic duo, will be with you for an entire hour tonight. Well, we're delighted to welcome on board the program now, Dirk Chatlin of the Omaha World Herald. You can also read Dirk's work online at Omaha.com. Dirk, great to have you with us. How are you? It is. It's, uh, you know, I always consider winter from like Christmas to daylight savings time in mid-march and uh we got a long way to go but uh i'm hopeful that we can stay healthy and i I keep monitoring those sunsets every day making sure they get a little bit later so we're we're going in the right direction 
One of my markers during the winter months is the Outland Trophy Dinner, which we did have last week up in Omaha. None of the winners were there because we got um, video messages from all of them. We did have a live Zoom with Tom Osborne and his legacy award winner this year, Bill Snyder, the former Kansas State coach. I know you had a chance to to catch up with Bill. Uh, your thoughts about what, what did you learn anything new from Bill? It's kind of hard sometimes. Bill's not the best talker in the world, but what did you learn and your thoughts about him being named the Osborne Legacy Award winner? Well, I guess what really stands out to me, first of all, is, is those guys have become good friends uh, over the last 20 years. They, they really share a passion for, for mentoring, and I think they always admired each other. Uh, but what really stands out about those two guys is just how differently they did it. I mean, I think if you, depending on who you asked, uh, I think some would say, I, in fact, I've read some people that, that – um, you know, said say that Bill Snyder is is the greatest football coach uh, of all time, and you know, based upon what he did at Kansas State, and yet, you know, a lot of people will say the same thing about Tom Osborne, and, and they did it in such different ways. I mean, Bill Snyder never had a top five team, let alone a national champion, um, and obviously Osborne took over a very different situation. So, I asked Tom last week when I talked to him, I said, "Have you ever, you know, have you ever wondered what it would be like to just?" go in and start over, uh, basically have to, to build from the ground up because you never, you never had that, uh, never had that opportunity. And, and he said, well, you know, I think it would be really hard. Uh, it's a really different situation, just 120 miles down the road. And, and I think the fact that they, that they did it so differently probably uh, enhance, enhance their admiration for each other. Um, you know, Bill Snyder never beat Tom Osborne, but I think Osborne, you know, really, really uh, thought highly of, of how Snyder built that thing really from nothing. I mean, you, you know the story as well as anybody, Greg. I mean, it's, uh, Kansas State was was basically left for dead in 1989, and, and Snyder built it, uh, built it all the way to a national powerhouse, and then he retired, and then he came back and did it again. So, uh, and that's, you know, that's the other part of this, not to get on, on too much of a tangent, but I'm sure Tom Osborne watched what Bill Snyder did the second time uh, and, and must have thought, you know, I, I could do that. I could do that at Nebraska. Uh, and I think a, a part of Tom will always sort of regret that he walked away as early as he did. Yeah, you, you, you go back and you know, you know there were promises made to Frank Solich, and I think that factored into Tom's decision to walk. Uh, but you're right. There's got to be days that he wakes up and goes, hmm, I, I had some game left in me, right? I had some time left in me to, to keep Nebraska rolling along there in, in the late 90s. You know, I've always been struck, Dirk, and I'm getting way off topic here. I hope you're okay with that rolling with this a little bit here. But, I, you know, you look at those programs in the late 90s that were so good, and Nebraska, Tennessee, and Florida State are three of them that come to mind, and they are all trying to find their way back to the, to the mountaintop, aren't they, in college football right now? Yeah, and I would throw Miami into there too. I mean, yeah. I I had a column last week where you know Miami hasn't finished top ten since since two thousand three, which is just stunning to me. Uh, probably more stunning than than the struggles of Tennessee and Nebraska. Um, and you know, I guess I guess the lesson there is that uh, is that nobody can do it forever. And as you know, as established as you think some of these programs are right now, whether it's Ohio State or Alabama. Uh, or Oklahoma, you know, it's just, it's hard to do it decade after decade after decade. And it really depends on, you know, having a coaching staff that knows what it's doing and having an identity and not running into NCAA issues and all sorts of other factors. Um, But it's, 
And I guess the the one point of hope, uh, or I guess there's you know there's more than one point of hope, but but certainly one from a Nebraska perspective is that some really high profile high profile programs have gone through you know the struggles that Nebraska has. I mean it's you know LSU's done it, Texas has done it, Notre Dame's done it, um, and I think the hope is that if Nebraska continues to care as much as they do and commit as fully as they do. Uh, that this thing is going to come back. It's just a matter of time. Uh, but, man, it's it's been a long 20 years, just as it has at Miami and Tennessee and Florida State. I mean, you know, those three programs in particular, Miami and Florida State and Nebraska, I mean, in the 80s and 90s, what they did was just phenomenal. I still marvel at Bobby Bowden's top five streak, you know, where they finished top five, I think, every year from from 1987 to 2000 or something like that. I mean, it was just almost impossible what Bobby Bowden did. And I think, you know, that the hope is that again, if you just keep, if you keep caring about it, uh, eventually, you know, it's going to kind of swing in your direction. Yeah. Bobby Bowden, by the way, a past winner of that Osborne legacy award as well, that that's been given out for the last five years at the Outland trophy dinner in Omaha in January. All right, let's get to what, what I called it, get you on, and, and can't wait to get your thoughts about the, the piece you put up earlier today about uh, should should some of these bowl games be shipped north? I mean, all these all these Big Ten schools just for years and, and Big Eight schools for years would go, ah, we'll, we'll go to Miami and play the Hurricanes or the Seminoles and the Orange Bowl, and, and we'll give it a go trying to win the national championship. The NFL doesn't do that. The NFL says home sites – for these championship games to get to the Super Bowl, lay it out for us. What what you what you come up with? What was your thought process about putting that piece together? Well, the the spark uh, really is is realizing where these NFC and AFC playoff games continue to be. You know, most of the of the best teams in the NFL this year were were in very cold weather places. You know, Buffalo, Kansas City, Green Bay. Um, you know, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, we could keep going. And and the NFL has no problem at all putting playoff games in those places in the middle of January on, you know, sometimes on a Saturday or a Sunday night when uh, when the windshield can be, you know, less than zero degrees. Uh, we can all mention some of our favorites over the years, including, you know, the Chiefs Patriots from just a couple of years ago when, when Rex Burkhead scored a really critical uh, touchdown late in the game, uh, you know that was a that was a zero degree night down in Kansas City, and there's been all sorts of them like that. I mean, Lambeau Field is is always uh, you know is always a scary place to play this time of year because you don't know what you're going to get, and 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 yet it just sort of becomes part of the NFL legend. It's like it's part of the obstacle course to get to the Super Bowl, and yet college football, uh, in contrast runs away from those environments uh, as much as possible. And, you know, it's the Big Ten won't even hold an outdoor conference championship game, let alone, you know, uh, try to persuade the college football power brokers to bring a, uh, a semifinal up to the north uh, where you might get Alabama or Georgia or Oklahoma, you know, on a 20-degree night outdoors. Uh, the Big Ten doesn't even ask. And I think it just bothers me because – I look at what the Big Ten, for instance, did this past year uh, to try to get Ohio State on an equal playing field with Alabama and try to get them into the playoff. And they, you know, they compromised Big Ten rules. They uh, they did all sorts of things to bend over backward to give themselves a chance to compete nationally. And I think maybe the best chance for them to compete nationally is just to try to shift the geography of the whole thing. I mean, it's 
maybe it, maybe you don't expand the playoff and have quarterfinals at at you know campus sites, which I think is a is a real um, you know would be a good option. Maybe you just bring the semifinals north every other year or one of the semifinals. You know, play it outdoors, play it at Soldier Field, play it at uh, play it you know at Lambeau Field, play it at uh, Cleveland, whatever. Pick your spot; it doesn't matter. I think the the thing is to try to get some of those Southern schools out of their comfort zone a little bit. Uh, I think it's really a lot to ask a school like Wisconsin, for instance, where you got to play November November games in you know sub freezing temperatures. Uh, I think it's a lot to ask a program like that to build, uh, to win outdoors in November, and at the same time build a program that's capable of of beating Alabama or Clemson indoors in January. I think those are two very, very different things, and I think people like Tom Osborne and Barry Switzer would agree with me on that, uh, where I think if at least there was an option for bringing some of those Southern schools up north for bowl games or in the postseason, uh, I think you, you stand a much better chance of winning. And if, if, if that's really the Big Ten's goal to win, I would start there. That's a pretty simple solution. But I get the sense that nobody in college football really wants to rock the boat. Everybody likes to go on these December and January vacations down to Florida and, Cal- Florida and California. And, you know, that's been going back 50 years now. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think I could see some of the Southern schools say, okay, we'll come north, but we're going to play where the Vikings play. We're going to play where the Lions play, right? And, uh, and, and but that that doesn't that doesn't mix it. I think it's a true test of a champion. Can you can you handle and your can your team adapt to different elements? I, I love your take on that. And you know I know that uh, Nebraska coaches for years have always told kids in the South. I know you know it, it's going to be cold playing some games here in November. But look at the NFL. Look at you're going to have to play right. Green Bay and Buffalo and New York and uh, go on and on and on. There's more of them that play in colder climates than warmer climates. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that how well that works on the recruiting trail. Um, to play devil's advocate, Kurt Warner this week, I saw his comments, Dirk, where he was like, he thinks the NFL ought to move the playoffs all indoors. I, I think that's ludicrous <laughs> to take that away from those those home stadiums. Oh, I think I think the NFL playoffs without, uh, without Lambeau Field and Soldier Field and Arrowhead Stadium would be would be uh, a much less appealing product. Yep. I think, you know, it's it's really a lot of fun to see some of these games in difficult environments. It was fun to see it back in Buffalo after, you know, 25 years gone. And so I would hate to see the NFL do that. You know, one more point, just to, and this is going to come across as um, patronizing to some of the locals, but uh, how many more national championships would Tom Osborne have won had – had the occasional uh, Orange Bowl been, you know, up north at Arrowhead or Soldier Field or someplace like that. I mean, you really think Miami and Bernie Kosar was going to come up here and beat the scoring explosion in, in 1983? I don't think so. So, you know, it's it's um, it's just something to chew on. And if the Big Ten is going to bend over backward in so many other ways uh, to compete with Southern schools, it seems like this might be the easiest solution on the board. Great point. Well, are you ready for some volleyball in January, February, March? We're about ready to jump into that here Friday. Can you believe? Can you believe that we went a calendar year without <laughs> Nebraska volleyball and the, the yeah. impact that that has, you know, culturally on our on our local uh, just just the conversations and, and not to mention the you know having people in the arena. But it's just uh, I can't believe it, it has been that long, and I think it. 
you know, I, I sort of use the metaphor that Husker volleyball is kind of like the vaccine for for a weary fan base, and, and I really do think it's going to give people a jolt of enthusiasm uh, to watch this team get back out there, and honestly, it helps that they're a national championship contender again. No doubt, and hopefully that Final Four gets locked in in Omaha. It sounds like it's going to be, so hopefully that's the case in April for that. Dirk, great stuff. We really enjoyed the piece today. Thanks for coming on. Always good to catch up, and let's hope for some a much better fan-friendly uh, 2021 than what we had in 2020. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Greg. This is the Nebraska Volleyball Radio Show, right here on the Husker Sports Network. Lexi Sun, will she serve Turner? Yes, she will. Perfect pass. Set left. A bird block back. Set point, big rim. Nebraska wins it there. 32-30. How sweet it is. Just sweet with another big block. Nebraska 32. Missouri 30. Wow. With Husker head volleyball coach, John Cook. Line drive serve, bad pass, right side. Hollingsworth swings, Doug. Nebraska volleyball, the set to the middle. Snivritz, kaboom! Woohoo! 21-15, all Nebraska. The Nebraska Radio Volleyball Show is presented by Sarter Heyman Jewelers, your Husker jewelry headquarters. Sarter Heyman, the official jeweler of Husker athletics at SarterHeyman.com. Now here's your host of the Nebraska Volleyball Show, John Baylor. That'll take you back. Fond memories. Greetings, Nebraska. Hello. Happy Tuesday night. They are back. The five-time national champions are back. Friday night, Bloomington, Indiana, 5 p.m. start. We take to the HSN Airwaves at 4.30. And then round two against Indiana, the rematch. Same time, 5 o'clock on Saturday, airtime at 4.30. The Big Red is back. And all six starters are back from a team that played, whoo, pull out the calendar, 13 months ago. <laughs> 13 months, and now for the first time ever, spring volleyball, when it really counts, with a late April Final Four scheduled for the Big O in Omaha. I'm your host, John Baylor. Well, he's starting his 21st season, belatedly, but we pulled him out of the woods of Wyoming. He came back, and he's got a good bunch, ranked number five preseason. Say hello again to longtime head coach John Cook. Coach, good evening. JB, it just feels like we just left off. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, just, you're just leaving Madison right now, a little down. Yeah. Boom, yeah. 13 months later, you're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. I. So, Lindsay, they gave me all this equipment for to do this broadcast or a radio, you know, with mm-hmm. COVID. We're, you know, we're not, we're not in the studio. And I thought Lindsay was talking about for the post-game radio show this weekend, and I'm, I'm in the middle of practice. You know, have you fired up all that stuff yet? Yeah, I go, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> she goes, you have radio tonight. I go, what? <laughs> so uh, anyway, this is pretty cool how they've done this in yeah. Husker Sports Network. Mike Elliott, oh. someone's got to be back there somewhere. Just this stuff's amazing. Mike Elliott's the Michael Jordan of radio technology. The guy, yeah. the, he's the Larry. He's the Larry of radio yeah. technology. The guy just, you can be anywhere. I mean, the, yeah. you do have to be somewhere. He can't allow you to, to be sort of conceptual and, and know. You have to be in one location, but we can do whatever we're doing. But we got to dust off the cobwebs, Coach. It's been a while. Yeah, I've, I had to learn how to coach again and, uh, and uh, be interesting to see for a match. It's going to be 
It's going to be uh, just different with no fans and just playing two teams. So I'm just going to pretend like it's a practice. Are the players, you think, ready to play a match or you think they need a few more months of practice? <laughs> I think they're pretty fired up to play. Uh, so they seem pretty excited. All of a sudden, I noticed there was a whole nother level of excitement this week in practice. <laughs> just like a bounce in their steps. They were excited and, and I mean, high energy and... Yeah. Other than the uh, volunteer assistants, the guys that help you out, I mean, pretty much they're just staring through the net at their own teammates now for 13 months. Uh, yeah. So I, they got to be excited. Yeah. It's, it's been uh, – well, the, as a coach, you love the development and that time to spend, and, and we've done some cool things. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that transfers when we play. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's been a grind uh, up to this point. But – I, I think for the players, they would rather play than practice. So that's the bottom line. Now let's get over some of the the uh, the, the quirky uh, elements that uh, attach themselves to a unique spring season. My understanding is that the Ivy League is not playing this year, so we won't see Harvard in the first round like we saw about four years ago. That was kind of rugged. Um, yeah. Also, the Big West is done, is not playing this spring, so no Hawaii this spring. Right. But everyone else is playing, correct? Although a lot of them are starting after the Big Ten, correct? Yeah, if they so that there was the ACC, which is Louisville, Notre Dame, Florida State, that conference played uh, I don't know six eight matches. Uh, the Big Twelve played eight ten twelve matches, so they'll be starting later. Uh, but we'll have a spring season. Uh, Creighton up the road didn't play in the fall. They'll but um, they're only playing just a handful of Big East games, so they have to find non-conference games, which has got to be really tough. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Big Ten has a 22-match schedule, and I just read today uh, Pac-12 is doing the same thing, but your alma mater, Stanford, is hosting the first two weekends and had to cancel already those two match those four matches because uh, Santa Clara County isn't letting them mm. have events yet. So they've had to cancel their first four games and, and you know, before they even start. So it just depends on where you are in the country and what conference you're in. And, you know, some, some of these conferences are allowing fans. The Big Ten is very tight, no fans. Uh, I've heard several schools, including Wisconsin, aren't even letting our, our uh, players' parents in. It's only the oh. parents of the uh, players on their team. So I think there's a couple of their schools doing that as well. So to clarify, when you say no fans, that's a Big Ten conference Directive and Correct. how about families of players? Are they allowed in the Devaney? So yeah, the, the only people in the Devaney are going to be uh, the four. Four each player gets four people on their pass list, kind of, and uh, and they're going to set them in pods around the the, the you know Devaney Center. Uh, we don't. I don't. I think just the only outside people coming in are the refs. I think our grad guys are going to do the balls and wipe the floor, and and they're just really. Not keeping people, you know, not letting anybody in there. Any chance that can be revisited, or you think that's going to stand for the full season? Uh, based on history of the Big Ten through this and what they did with football and what they're doing with basketball, I would say they're slow to change. Mm. So I don't, I don't anticipate it. Um, I think the interesting thing is going to be, you know, just looking at our men's basketball team, uh, some of the other basketball teams uh, in the conference. Uh, 
you know, how many games they've had to cancel. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is going to be how many cancellations do we have and how, actually how many matches will we get to play. So that's going to be the, the story each week, I think. Hmm. But for the moment, no fans in the Devaney as the Huskers get ready to, to uh, start their first spring season ever that counts. And it'll begin on Friday, Indiana at 5 o'clock. We'll be on the air at 4.30 if you want to speak to the head coach tonight. This is our debut spring Nebraska volleyball show. And it's 531-500-4686. 531-500-4686 as the Huskers get ready to take on the Indiana Hoosiers on Friday night. Yep, here we are, back for hour number three. I hope you enjoyed our first volleyball show of the year. It's got everybody's clock off, right? I mean, you're expecting to hear those in August and September and October. Here it is, January. And you have John Cook and John Bader. I mean, what a treat, right? They'll be back every week. Games begin Friday. Matches begin Friday. I keep saying games. It's matches in volleyball. Matches begin Friday. Indiana, 5 o'clock. We'll have it here on the full network. Pre-game at 4.30 as the Huskers open on the road with back-to-back games against indiana all right coming up this hour it's tuesday that means top 10 tuesday headed your way we'll also talk some men's gymnastics later on in the hour with head coach chuck schmelka and we'll even have a couple of segments open for you to join us with calls or texts let's get it going with the top 10 we think them up we count them down it's Top 10 Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. And tonight, thanks to Tim's brilliant idea, we're going to talk about athletes who excelled in team sports over the age of 40. Good job here, Tim. This is a, a nice nice find by you. Yeah, I, I don't have brilliant ideas often, but when I do, uh, you know, they're, they're great. So, uh, yeah, thank me later. Any, any trouble, boys, putting your list together on this one? It was, uh, I would say it was fairly difficult just because the number one thing is how, how did you weight it was the question because did you go by just greatest players who kind of just uh, coasted into their twilight years, so to speak, or did you pick players who were still uh, pretty productive well into their 40s? And I kind of tended to weight mine uh, on guys who were still uh, putting up some nice numbers uh, into their 40s, which is not easy to do, as uh, I found out. But there are a tremendous, a lot of great players, uh, really too many to choose from, uh, that were still great into their 40s. So I was kind of like Tim where I tried to give some bonus points to guys that uh, f- played well into their 40s. I, what, what I first tried to do was just think of guys off the top of my head. You know, who, who are guys that I know played a long time? And a lot of the guys that I thought of weren't quite 40 that I thought were going to be 40. So then I had to rely on the old Internet for some help. But um, I, I, I was able to get a handful by myself and – um. Yeah, I I tended to give a tip of the cap to those that were still performing better at age forty or later. Okay, very good. All right, Tim. Since this one was your brainchild, you you get to lead us off. All right. Uh, well, I'll start out with uh, number ten. Uh, and it's kind of a crime I have him this far low on my list, but a guy that has to be on there, George Blanda, uh, longtime NFL quarterback. Uh, yep. In fact, I believe he set the record for most seasons in the NFL at 26. Didn't retire until he was 48 
<laughs> years old. Uh, he was also a place kicker, so he holds uh, too many records to count, like most PATs made, uh, most passing touchdowns in a single game was seven, uh, most seasons played, as I mentioned. Um, also, um, at one point, had most interceptions all time. I believe Brett Favre passed him up for that ignoble honor. But um, a guy who definitely deserves to be on this list, uh, 48. There aren't too many players in any sport, even if it's not a super physical one uh, like football, that, that make it to that long. And, yeah, George Bland at my number 10. Hated that guy because I was a Chiefs fan growing yeah. up, and he would come off the bench and replace Daryl LaMonica at quarterback and lead him to a win and all that. Speaking of point afters, Ben, that, that reminds me that uh, Kevin Suits, who we had on the program last night, speaking of Ben's, said that Ben Stilley holds the Ashland Greenwood record for PATs. You're going to have to talk to him about that at some point in time. Hmm. I, I had no clue that he was a kicker in high school. I would love to try and watch him <laughs> kick a ball. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, my number 10, I'm going old-time baseball. Gaylord Perry used to throw a knuckleball. He mm-hmm. wins a Cy Young, guys, at the age of 40. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Baseball Hall of Famer Gaylord Perry. Had a, had a brother that also played and played a very high-level baseball as well, but Gaylord Perry makes my list at number 10. Man, I, uh, I, I should have dipped away from the memory bank and relied on the Internet because you guys are pulling out George Blanda and Gaylord Perry. <laughs> that, those names are, are probably weighted a little heavier than the guys that I thought of off the top of my head. Well, the, the first guy that I thought of just retired from the NBA, and he was a guy that I looked up to growing up. That's Vince Carter. Dude played in the NBA when he was 43 years old. He played in 60 games last year for the Hawks at age 43. Now, he wasn't definitely as prolific as a a scorer as he was, say, even when he was 30. That was his last All-Star year. But he played in 73 games and 76 games in in two of his four seasons when he was past 40 years old. Averaged still over eight points. Everybody remembers Vince Carter for his high-flying dunks with the Raptors in the dunk contest. But it is not easy in a league anymore where 18, 19, 20-year-olds have run the league. To play when you're 43 is just absolutely insane. So first guy I thought of when we did this list was Vince Carter. Yeah, that's a really good one. Uh, Love Vince. Not on my list, but he definitely deserving of a spot. Uh, well, my number nine, I'm going to the NHL. And how about Gordie Howe? Uh, he actually played into his 50s. So I guess I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm uh, cheating a little bit. He actually didn't retire until the ripe old age of 52. Uh, he began his professional career in 1945 with, the, with, the, uh, with Detroit. Didn't retire until 1980. And then in 1996, he came out of retirement actually to play for the Detroit Vipers for a one-game kind of contract deal as a minor league hockey team uh, when he was 69 years old, meaning he was the only player in hockey history to have competed professionally in six different decades. Uh, So Gordie Howe, definitely deserving to be on the list of players in the 40s, in fact, played into his 50s. He played in the era when the, nobody wore helmets. You know, think yeah. about, you know, it's it's so, you know, now you don't see a hockey player without a helmet on. He played before they, and guys were mad when they had to go to those helmets. Ah, it's yeah. restrictive, and they didn't like that. But, yeah, he, he, he played decade after decade. I'm glad you put him on your list. I want to correct myself on Gaylord Perry. He wasn't a knuckleballer. He threw a spitball. And he was always known, and had, it was in hitters' heads because he was. Everybody's always thinking he was greasing the ball up. Well, well, he did a lot. So, but that's a little side fact. I just want. I'm sure somebody out there goes, Greg. It wasn't a knuckleball. They're right. It's a spitball. All right, my number nine. I'm going to the NFL. One of the great wide receivers of all time, Jerry Rice, played to up to age 44 in the National Football League. Now, he certainly wasn't nearly as effective as his great days at the 49ers, but certainly one of the great, all-time great wide receivers in NFL history. Got it well into the 40s. Jerry Rice makes my list of number nine. 
All right. Uh, my number nine, I'm going to baseball for the first time for nine, my number nine again. <laughs> again, uh, We're not talking about Gordie Howe or uh, George Blanda here. I'm going Bartolo Colon, the, uh, the, the, the ageless wonder that was. He, um, you think about his baseball career. He, he finished, uh, well, age 40, he, he was uh, an all-star in 2016. He was sixth in the MVP, <laughs> MVP voting, and he had his first major league home run uh, at the age of 40 years old. So Bartolo Colon, who started his career in 97, uh, was an all-star in 2016. Um, man, just an absolute war horse. And, um, you know, the 2016 season, he finishes with a 15-8 and eight record. He was 43 years old, all-star again at age 40, <laughs> pitched two years ago with the Texas Rangers at age 45. Uh, dude was just an absolute animal. And, um, I mean, you're an all-star twice after the age of 40 and, and make it to 45 pitching in the major leagues. Tip of the cap to you. I, I know you guys have seen the video of him hitting his first home run yeah. uh, of the of his career uh, at age 40. It was just absolutely incredible. So Bartolo Colon finished his career with the uh, with the Rangers, and I think, he fi- I think he played with like six teams. Uh, just from age 40 on it. People just kept giving him tries, and he kept working out. So uh, Bartolo Colon for me. <laughs> my, my number eight, I'm sticking with uh, Major League Baseball, Ricky Henderson. Uh, when he was 40, he won the NL Comeback Player of the Year with the Mets. And then in 2001, when he was 43, he broke three all-time records for most walks drawn, most runs, and most games played in left field. So the dude was an absolute Iron Man. Uh, another one of those fun uh, things, he started his career in 1979 uh, with the Oakland A's and then uh, did not retire until 2003 with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So uh, talk about a, a, a long talk about longevity. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, and, it, of course, uh, a guy who kind of think fits both on that metric of not only was a great player in his prime, but was continuing to be a great player into his 40s. So Ricky Henderson, my number eight. No doubt. I mean, the guy could swipe some bases, couldn't he? Unbelievable. The all-time stolen base leader in baseball history. I'm going to go with uh, the all-time hits leader in Major League Baseball history, Pete Rose, as my number eight. At age 40, he was a National League All-Star. And I know the fan balloting factored into that, but still Pete was rocking those hits, playing tough, hard-nosed baseball. I'm a Pete Rose guy, if you can't tell. Pete Rose makes my list of number eight. All right, my number eight, very similar to Greg's. Uh, slightly different era, but very similar statistics as you've thrown out. I've got David Ortiz uh, wrapped up his career at in 2016 at age 40 with Boston, and he, too, uh, was an all-star. Uh, 38 home runs, 127 RBIs. you got to go all the way back to when he was 30 years old to where he had more than that in his last season. 151 games as a 40-year-old, an all-star sixth, and the MVP was a silver slugger. So David Ortiz, um, absolutely worthy of a spot on my list. Kind of one of those guys that helped invent the designated hitter spot. Great career with Boston and multi-time all-star, finished his career as an all-star with the Red Sox in 2016. Uh, My number seven, sticking with baseball again, Roger Clemens uh, was named to three all-star teams when he was over the age of 40, uh, and he also won a Cy Young at the age of 42. That ain't bad. Uh, of course, Ooh. his uh, you know career was marred by some he was uh, juicing. PED. Yeah, he was juicing. But uh, nevertheless, um, still a good player. So Roger, Roger Clemens, my number seven. Are you ready to put him in the Hall of Fame? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. look, I, I think that you I, – I, like the, the, I like that you put him in there 
maybe you put an asterisk and say, hey, listen, he was he was doing PEDs, but it's not like if I was juicing, I'd be all of a sudden be an amazing baseball player. You still have to have the talent. You still got to be able to throw the ball, hit the ball, see the ball. You know, I, I, I would put him in the in the hall, but put an asterisk by his name. Yeah, very good. All right, my number seven, I'm going to the National Football League. I got Brett Favre here. At the age 40, he's the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, which still seems very, very odd to me, and led him to the NFC title game where they came up short just losing to the Saints of Drew Brees. Favre, great career, great player. I know he's still thought pretty highly of in Green Bay, so Favre makes my list at number seven. And I actually align up with Greg here. I've got Brett Favre at number seven for me as well. And it, it, it was weird pulling, doing the research and seeing him with that picture, that purple jersey, and remembering how that season ended for Minnesota fans. Just really bizarre. Uh, but absolutely, you know, you knew that was the guy that was going to make it to at least 40, and he did. So Brett Favre, my number seven also. Uh, my number six, I got an icon of the NBA, Dikembe Mutombo, the blocking machine, that famous wag of the finger. Uh, he was still playing, of course, at a high level at the age of 40. Uh, in 06, he had a 22-rebound game, which made him the first ever player uh, at that age to have over 20 boards in a game. He also passed up uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the all-time list of block shots in a career, I think a year later after that. So Dikembe Mutombo, uh, not even uh, grandfather time could slow down his blocking machine. So he's good enough to be my number six. Okay. My number six, I'm going back to baseball. I've got Hank Aaron here. What a what an amazing career. He broke the Babe's home run record after he turned 40. So that that alone that he could still deal with all that pressure and still perform to get the record of Major League Baseball for a short time anyway. So Hank Aaron makes my list of number 6. All right, very good. All right, my number 6, uh, Greg, I believe you had earlier. I've got Jerry Rice here at number 6 at age 40 with Oakland. 92 catches. 1,211 yards and seven touchdowns. He helped get that Raiders team to a Super Bowl. But, I mean, you think about receivers nowadays that are getting up there in age, right? A.J. Green, Julio Jones, some of these guys that were premier receivers have a hard time even getting on the field, let alone putting up that kind of production. And they're not even close to 40. I mean, they still got five years, five, six years to go. This is five years later, still 1,200 yards, able to stay healthy and score seven touchdowns and get a team to a Super Bowl. Jerry Rice on my list. All right, my number five, I'm going to the world of Premier League soccer. I had to get at least one in there. Ryan Giggs, he retired at the age of 40. In fact, was briefly a Manchester United's player manager uh, for a little while. Um, but he actually predated the Premier League. Uh, he, he started his career back in 1990, back when it was still known as the First Division. Uh, so he was one of those guys who uh, was had scored in all, uh, like 21 or 22, uh, up, up to the point he retired uh, seasons of the Premier League, which was a, a rare feat. He also, I believe, still holds the assist record for most assists in Premier League history. He also never got a red card in his career, which is extremely disciplined. It's not that easy to pull that off um and so yeah he's he was an incredible player uh really disciplined disciplined too and i had to sneak at least one soccer player on the list so ryan Giggs, my number five did brett make you do that <laughs> he did not uh but he's he's, he's deserving if there's ever a because so- a lot of soccer players they turn you know 38 39 and they go play an mls and they stand around a midfield and, and you know watch the ball get kicked around like a david beckham uh and it's really just a semi-retirement but ryan giggs actually deserves to be on this list because he was still playing at a high level well into his late 30s and 40s 
All right. This my number five was his name was mentioned. He wasn't mentioned as an entry, but his name was mentioned, and that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He played until the age of forty-two. The big sky hook, the goggles, the whole thing. What an NBA career he had, and he's put up an awful lot of points and records. Some have been broken by now, but uh, he certainly was the the big man of his era. So Kareem makes my list of number five. All right, my number five was mentioned earlier by Tim. I've got Gordy Howe. Um, I mean, you want to talk about ageless wonders. This dude played hockey forever and uh, more than worthy of a spot. Plenty of good seasons past the age of 40, more more than probably even need to be mentioned here. But I uh, can't talk about dudes that played in their sport longer. And talk about a physical sport. I mean, that, that that's not an easy sport to play that long and not an easy sport on your body. So Gordy Howe, without a doubt, uh, worthy of a spot. My number four, uh, Greg, you already had him hammering Hank Aaron, hitting his 715th homer when he turned 40 uh, to make himself the home run champion. That, as they say, ain't bad. And good enough for my number four. Okay. My number four, I'm going back to baseball as well, and I've got Randy Johnson, the big unit, who uh, led the National League in strikeouts uh, at the age of 44. How about that? So he's still knocking guys out, cutting them down at that age. Pretty incredible. And so uh, killing pigeons too, and he was. Yeah, he, he did a <laughs> lot of exploding pigeons. <laughs> so the big unit makes my list at four. Second time I've copied Greg Randy Johnson here at number four, four for me as well. How about his age forty and sixteen wins? He was an all star, thirty five starts, two hundred ninety strikeouts to forty four walks. Had an ERA of two point six zero. I mean that's an unheard of. Four complete games, two shutouts, an 8.4 war that year for the Diamondbacks. I mean, the numbers are just dumb for Randy Johnson that year, and he obviously pitched well past that too. But uh, the, the magic number 40, pretty incredible for Randy Johnson. All right, my uh, number three, Greg, you already had him, Pete Rose. You mentioned, Greg, that he made the all-star team uh, in his 40s. I, I believe he did it twice. Um, but at 44, he also broke Ty Cobb's all-time hit record. So a dude who was still ripping the cover off the ball uh, well into his 40s and a guy who I think also deserves to be in the hall. Uh, it'll probably happen posthumously uh, given the nature of the reason why he is uh, currently not uh, really friendly with uh, people still in baseball uh, given the gambling uh, things that went on. But a guy who definitely deserves to be there because he is one of the greatest players of all time in any sport. All right, very good. My number three is, is kind of in the same line as my number four, and I've got Nolan Ryan here. He led the league in strikeouts after the age 40 as well. Seven career no-hitters, and he just kept mowing guys down. He was he, uh, the, One of the fun things, there's a video of he threw at a hitter or something, and this young guy comes charging the mound, and Nolan's in his 40s, and he takes a guy down, just knocks this young kid to the ground, loved his spunk, his fight. Uh, man, 5,714 career strikeouts. Pretty amazing. I've got Nolan Ryan at number three. Man, I, I, I swear I'm not copying you, Greg. I've got Nolan here at my number three as well. How about his year when he was 42 and 20, 20, or excuse me, 2005 with the Astros? First of all, helped get them to the World Series. Um, 32 starts. He had 13 wins, 185 strikeouts, and ERA south of two at 1.87. When I was thinking about this, the, 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 the miracle thing about um, you know guys like Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan, and, and Randy Johnson, the guys that we've all mentioned here in the last few picks, 
Think about any more how hard guys throw in the major mm-hmm. leagues and how many elbow issues we're having with these guys. Th- these guys all pitched in their 40s, all were file- fireballers, and none of them had any arm issues that, that ended their careers. It's absolutely incredible. If these guys were to pitch back then and get a Tommy John injury, their careers were over. Uh, but the, the, the way that they were able to stay healthy, I mean, really all those guys, Nolan Ryan, Roger Clemens, and Johnson, all of them were able to sustain that level of, of power for, through, for multiple years, and that's just incredible. My number two, you guys already had him, Brett Favre. Uh, really missed the gunslinger. When he was playing for mm-hmm. the Packers, I uh, was not a fan at all, but it wasn't until he had his uh, interesting uh, voyage with the Jets when he was known as Jet Favre, and then at, with the Vikings where he brought him to that championship game where I kind of had a new appreciation for um, his you know, his quarterback skills and how he would just sling the ball like 80 yards downfield. He had such a cannon of an arm. Probably threw one too many picks, but again, a guy that I missed watching, uh, seeing him play uh, when he did retire. And when, In fact, when he, I didn't believe it when he retired. I, I figured that he'd be back in the league eventually um, you know, and seeing those, those Wrangler jeans commercials uh, <laughs> that were ubiquitous, if you will. Yeah. Um, but a guy that I, I definitely miss seeing play uh my number two brett Favre. all right my number two is another nfl quarterback and that is tom brady who won a super bowl at the age of 41 still has a chance to win one here at the age of 43 the most super bowl rings of any quarterback in national football league history tom brady is my number two just number two wow a little low hey you take it easy there bud <laughs> uh my, my number two mentioned by both of you hammer and hank here for number number two for me uh, my number one, you guys might be able to guess, uh, TB12, Tampa Bay, Tampa Tom, uh, Tom, Tom Brady. My number one goes without saying, the best that ever was or ever will be. And he's still going. Uh, I would not be surprised if he breaks George Blanda's record for most seasons play. He's going he's gonna to keep going until he drops dead. It's probably that weird diet he does where he doesn't eat tomatoes or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what kind of voodoo magic uh, Tom Brady has that's kept him going, uh, but I don't want it to stop. He's going to keep going, and uh, you can you can put it in stone. Uh, the Bucks are going to win it all this year. Put it in stone. Yeah, I'm not buying that. <laughs> Uh, I think they go down in flames Sunday. But all right, my number one, uh, I've got Barry Bonds here. He wins the MVP at the age of 40. He played his best baseball at the end of the career. And, yes, he was getting help with with, uh, enhancement drugs, but he was the best baseball player of the last quarter century. And so from that standpoint alone, I put him at number one. I knew he was going to be your number one. I didn't touch him because I'll let you wear the bullets uh, from everybody on this one, Sharpie. I'll, I'll take the layup and, and, and take Tom Brady. And to be no. honest with you, he, he wouldn't <laughs> have been my number one had he not had the season he did with Tampa Bay. Uh, I, I know it's, it's going to come to an end this week. Sorry, Tim. Green Bay is going to take it to him to another guy that might make it to 40 and Aaron Rodgers. But uh, to, to come into a new place and, and do that with a new roster, granted he has probably the best receiving core in football to help him uh, with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and you go sign Antonio Brown, Rob Gronkowski, and a career year, by the way, for Ronald Jones at running back. Uh, and a good defense. To, to all that aside, he was still able to get Tampa Bay where they are. So... Uh, as much as I, I hate doing that to Tim to stroke his ego, um, Tom Brady, my number one. It felt good to two. admit that, right, right, Ben? Yeah, I mean, how, how old is Patrick Mahomes? How many more years we got until he's 40? Uh, like <laughs> 16. You better enjoy this while you got it. If he, has, if he runs any more option plays, he might not make it to 15, 40. 15 more years. <laughs> sure thing.
Long time. All right, there you go. There's our list. Top 10 performers in team sports over the age of 40. That was a pretty star-studded list. I was shocked there were that many that jumped out, and there were a lot more that we didn't get to on that list. Welcome back. Sports Finally here on a Tuesday night. Greg Sharp with you. Coming up this weekend, the Oscar men's gymnastics team will get their season underway as they host Michigan at the Devaney Center Sunday at 1230. And delighted to be joined now on the program by Chuck Schmelka. Man, it's been a long, winding road to get to this. As a coach, how the heck are you? I'm doing fine. Yes, it has been a long time. <laughs> Good to hear from you. How how have how have the last month or two been as you kind of get this group geared up to go and you didn't have a schedule till a few weeks ago? I mean, what, what's it been like the last couple months? Oh, it's been a fight for sure. Um, but the last month has been really good. We got through our quarantines and through the summer of no training and everything else, and now we're just eager to get the season going and actually compete. It's going to be great. No training and gymnastics don't go hand in hand. Were your guys able to get workouts in somewhere, someplace? I imagine they found something they could go work on, right? Yeah, a lot of them went home, and they did what they could do, but it depended on what city they're from, and a lot of gyms across the country were closed. So it's been a mess, I can tell you that, but we're, we're finally getting into some pretty good shape, and we're ready to go. You look like you have a good mix, Coach. Of you, you have a handful of seniors. You had a terrific recruiting class, one of the top ones in the country. Let, let's talk about the older gymnasts. What, how, how have they handled all this? Obviously more mature, older, know what, the, what it's going to be like to compete. Uh, what about that older group? And, and give us some names of guys that, that you're going to rely on here this season. Well, definitely the six seniors, and I'm really fortunate to have six seniors because they are carrying the team. They were oh, Zoom calling and doing all kinds of stuff over the summer with the guys, just making sure they were trying to do strength and run and stay into some kind of shape. Um, but we have Jake Bonet and Griffin Keeler, who are two of the top gymnasts in the country, uh, Jonathan Skripnik's great on a couple events. Zach Peters is a solid floor vault guy for us and a team captain. So we're we're doing pretty well with the upper-level guys. We just got to keep the middle guys going. And I mentioned you had one of the best recruiting classes in the country. How, how have those young guys gotten themselves integrated in college gymnastics? Pretty good. It was kind of weird. We were going pretty strong, and then, then we got hit with some COVID stuff, so we had to close up. And it hurt everybody there. But the, the two freshmen are really, really talented kids. And they're going to be leaders on our team for the next few years, for sure. Taylor Christopoulos and Yanni Chronolophagus are unbelievable talents. How about those last names? I mean, I saw, I'm looking at your roster. I'm like, are you kidding me? First, I thought, well, they're going to be brothers. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not spelled the same. <laughs> I know. It took me two months to learn how to say them. <laughs> All right, how close are you to having set lineups? Are you going to have to to experiment with this through the first couple of of duels that you have? Well, we will experiment, yes. We uh, have a couple guys dinged up, and we're going to hold a couple guys out just because they're not quite ready. And this season, it's going to be short, but it's going to be long. 
in duration. And we got to make sure we're ready by the end of the, you know, for a Big Tens and NCAA. So we're going to experiment with some guys, put some younger kids in, and uh, they're ready, though, Greg. They're, they're ready to go, and they're eager, and they're hungry to excel and show what they can do. Well, this is a heck of a way, heck of a way to start it. Two top five teams dueling on <laughs> Sunday with Michigan. What what do you expect out of this thing on Sunday? How, Michigan obviously has got some talented talented gymnasts. Yes, they're well coached. They got a great team. They have a couple guys who are up for the possibly the Olympic Games. So they, they're going to be tough to beat. We have to be on. We have to, you know, bang out all our routines and, and, and stay as clean as we possibly can for this early in the year. But I feel pretty confident our guys are up to the challenge, and it's going to be a great, great competition. I just wish fans could come and watch. How different will that be for your team to not have some energy that, that crowds, particularly at the Devaney Center, can generate for your team? I, I know both squads have to deal with it, but it is going to be odd, isn't it? Yes, it's going to be very odd, I think. I think it'll benefit the away team because you usually don't travel with that many fans anyway. And we, for the last three years, have had the highest attendance in men's gym across the country. So it will affect us, I believe. Uh, We'll crank the music maybe a little louder and just hopefully the parents will be, you know, super loud. And then the rest of our team is just going to have to carry the weight. Well, I'm sure your your team and, and you and your coaching staff were certainly excited that you finally get to compete again. I know you got the the end of last year ripped away from you when COVID shut everything down, and you, you may not even – you probably were even worried a couple months ago whether you're even going to have a season. So I'm just grateful that yes. you get to compete here, Coach, starting on Sunday. Well, thanks. We are too, and we're uh, really excited for the challenge this year. We do have a very talented and good team, so we just got to put things together and see where we can go. Great. 12.30 Sunday, Michigan BTN Plus has the television broadcast of that. Coach, we appreciate it. We'll check in with you a couple of times throughout the season. Good luck. Thank you so much, Greg.